Welcome to our brand new St. Luke's podcast known as Your Week with St. Luke's. We have a great weekly series planned for you as we look at the characters in our lives through the story of David. Now we are connecting the literary archetype characters that are found in most stories, definitely found in David's stories, but also found in our stories as well. We're looking at the roles those characters have played in our life, and maybe sometimes when we're called to or when we do play those roles in other people's lives. Now we are excited to be joined each week by our dear friends from Candler School of Theology at Emory University, Dr. Ryan Bonfilio, Associate Director of the Practice of Old Testament and the Director of the Candler Foundry, and Reverend Dr. E.B. Arnold, Postdoctoral Fellow with Candler Foundry. Now tonight, Ryan will be lecturing on the Herald Harbinger archetype that we find with both Hannah and Samuel. They play an important role that leads to the anointing of David as our king. And so we're going to dig into that story um, that we find um, at the beginning of 1 Samuel. And then after his lecture, we want you to stay tuned for our office hours conversation. Pastor Jeremy is going to come in and join Ryan and E.B. as they talk about the heralds that have been in our lives um, and the role that they've played to give us a message of truth or speak for God. And then they're going to go in and talk about maybe sometimes how we're called to be a herald in another person's life, but we don't always take that step. So let's listen. All right, Ryan, I'm going to kick it over to you. All right, Jen, thank you so much. And to all the other pastors at St. Luke's, it's so good to be here with all of you. As I've said before, uh, so many faces are familiar to me in the audience from previous classes that I've taught, and I'm so glad to have you back for those. I don't yet know. I'm looking forward to get uh, to know you through this course, through your insights, ideas, and questions. So everyone, welcome. It is great to see you. As Jen said, I do uh, work at Candler, and I wear two different hats there. One is sort of the traditional Old Testament teacher hat, and the other hat is I serve as the director of the Candler Foundry. And for those who might not have heard of that before, the Candler Foundry is a new initiative that's essentially trying to take the best of what seminary does, in-depth learning and exploration into theology and scripture, and to make that learning accessible and engaging to folks just like you, to people who probably never will go to seminary. We want you to be able to have that experience of what typically happens at seminary here for many of you in the comfort of your own homes or in the context of your own congregation. And so that's what gets me in the room for this class on David. Uh, just a few other biographical notes. Some of you know that I from, am from Philadelphia. And for that reason, I suffer from a lifelong love of Philadelphia sports. Uh, the disappointment that is Philadelphia sports has deeply shaped uh, my personality and I would add my theology. So look for traces of that as I teach. Uh, my, I'm a pastor's spouse. My wife, Jamie, uh, is a Presbyterian minister uh, in Atlanta. I almost said here in Atlanta, but I'm actually in Orlando right now. And together we have an amazing and energetic and exhausting son named Leo. Um, I probably will subject you to pictures of him at some point through the course of this study. But Leo has just started second grade and we are thrilled to be back in school in person and hope that it stays that way somehow <laughs> in the months ahead. Um, friends, as we engage together on Zoom, I want to utilize what Zoom can let us do. And so on a number of occasions, I'm going to share my screen and you're going to be able to see slides as you also still see me uh, speaking and hear me speaking. I also want to encourage you to use the chat function. The chat is at the bottom of your screen. Many of you are familiar with it. 
please feel free to click into the chat and to put forward any questions or comments or insights that you have along the way. We will have time for Q&A and for discussion uh, in a little bit, but at any point, please feel free to put through your questions to us. So just to get us practicing that, let's do something real quickly. I'm gonna share my screen and just to make sure that there aren't uh, any mishaps with this, can you give me a thumbs up if the screen came through? Look good? You can see a screen, awesome, fantastic. I'm gonna move you back down here. Now we're gonna practice using the chat. Now, some of you have seen me do this before, but this is variation on a theme. We're gonna check in, a one minute check-in to see how you all are doing this evening. And the way we're gonna do that is something that I call the scale of cat. The scale of cat, which of these nine cats best channels the state of your inner psyche and soul this evening? Which of these cats capture how you are feeling tonight? So just use the chat and just put through a number. So a one or a two or a five or a six. And the scale of cat tells you quickly uh, about how everyone is doing. So put through your numbers to us uh, and we'll just, just for the lighthearted way, we'll get a uh, a sense of how to use the functionality of Zoom. All right, how's it going? You're finding your cat that matches your soul this evening? All right, I'll show you who I am. I think I'm, oh, I don't know. I think I'm this, this guy up here in the upper right-hand corner. Where is he? Um, I think somehow that guy, that guy right there, that's me this evening. So anyway, uh, just for a little bit of fun, please feel free to use the chat throughout. Um, all right, friends, let's talk about David. I love talking about this biblical figure. I find David to be one of the most fascinating characters in all of scripture, one of the most fascinating three-dimensional textured characters in all of scripture. And part of the reason for that is that there is more space dedicated to telling David's story in the Old Testament than any other character. 41 chapters of the Old Testament are spent telling David's story. And that's more than any other biblical figure. And interestingly enough, when you look beyond the Bible to all the vast literature of the ancient Near East, no single character outside of the Bible garners this much sustained attention in other literature. So David really is unique just by virtue of how much airtime he gets in these ancient texts. The other reason I think David is fascinating is because he is a deeply complicated person. He is a sinner and he is a saint. He is deeply faithful and also deeply flawed. The same David that is capable of acts of justice and compassion and praise is the same David who is mixed up in partisan politics and violence and abuse. When we encounter David, we encounter someone of deep contradiction and complexity. And that makes him a fascinating figure to, to study because he's so three-dimensional. But I think what we discover when we encounter David's story is that we can find ourselves in his story precisely because of that complexity. We will see our deepest flaws reflected in David, but so too will we see our our greatest virtues reflected in David. So he's this marvelous figure uh, for finding ourselves and our story in his story. Now, the third reason for that I think David is so fascinating are all of the supporting characters that surround him. There's some amazing secondary figures from Hannah 
and Samuel to Goliath and Saul. There's so many people around David that are interesting in their own right. They're not the, 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 the main characters of the story, if you will, but without them, we wouldn't know David as we know him. And so what I wanna suggest for this study as sort of our way into this topic is that the best way to understand David in all of his complexity and all of his richness is to think about the relationships that define him, to think about the relationships he is in. And isn't that true of so many of us that, that coming to really understand who we are as individuals uh, really involves understanding the relationships that we are in and how those relationships have formed our story. Well, it's no different with David. So what we're gonna do friends uh, throughout this study is each of the six weeks in this beginning part, this beginning lecture part, we're gonna explore different characters in David's story. And we're gonna organize them by what are essentially standard or archetypal types of characters that are well known from film and literature. So here in this first week, we're gonna talk about the role of the herald or the harbinger. Or we're gonna look at uh, Samuel and Hannah. Next week, we're gonna look at the antagonizer. We're gonna look at the role of Goliath and Saul. And then in week three, we're gonna look at the caregiver or the provider. And here we're gonna focus on Jonathan and Michal, both of whom are siblings of Saul. In week four, we're gonna look at the nemesis. And instead of looking at a different character, we're actually gonna to talk together about how David's ego is really his chief rival, his chief nemesis in this story. Week five, we're gonna look at the fool. And here I mean the Shakespearean sense of a fool. That is someone who can speak truth to power in a provocative way. And we're gonna look at the, the prophet Nathan and the figure of Abigail. And then finally in week six, we're gonna look at the love interest. And I'm gonna leave this somewhat ambiguous um, because we could either talk about David's love interest or, and this is where we'll head, is we can talk about how David is God's love interest. And I think that's more of a, the way we'll end up into that chapter. So we'll look at these, these are the six chapters or six topics that'll frame our study. And each week uh, we will follow a similar pattern. Here on the Sunday night, we'll, we'll do a study. We'll have a part of it will be a lecture from me. And then part of it will be a structured discussion where your voices and inputs and uh, questions will come to the fore. And then throughout the week, we're going to produce a podcast along with others from St. Luke's that really dives into these different stories and archetypal characters. And then finally, capping off the week will be the Sunday morning service. So we'll sort of go through this cycle each week where we begin on Sunday nights, and then that week's topic will culminate on the Sunday morning. So friends, that is what is ahead of us for this study. Um, and for now, we're going to dive, without further ado, we're going to dive straight into this first week. Now, before I do that, before I get to the main figures of this first week, which are Hannah and her son Samuel, I want to situate us for a moment uh, in terms of where we find the story of David. And I want to do that in two ways. I want to think about where does David's story fit in the canon or in the series of texts that make up our Old Testament. Well, David is found actually in a lot of places in the Old Testament, but the most sustained part of his story is found in two consecutive books named 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Samuel. And they're relatively early on. If you're just flipping through the Old Testament from beginning to end, they're relatively early on. Uh, they come right after Judges and Ruth and right before 1st and 2nd Kings. 
What's interesting, friends, is that this is the order in our Christian Old Testaments. But if you were to visit a Jewish friend in a synagogue and opened up their Hebrew Bible, uh, what they would call the Hebrew Bible, it would have virtually the same content as our Old Testaments. But in some places, the order of the books is different. And in fact, First and Second Samuel is one of those places. Instead of following after Ruth, First and Second Samuel follows immediately after the book of Judges. And the last line of the book of Judges actually really makes sense of this. This is the last line of Judges. In those days, there was no king in Israel. All the people did what was right in their own eyes. You see, what happens at the end of Judges is that the, the world, the society of ancient Israel is fractured. It's highly polarized and disordered. There's a ton of conflict. Maybe this is sounding similar to some of you in terms of where we find ourselves now. But the comment is that there was no king. So the problem that they didn't have this figure to bring the people together in the midst of conflict is really sort of the hinge in the Hebrew Bible that moves us from Judges into the book of Samuel, which is all about Israel establishing kingship for the very first time. It's not just that David becomes king, but Israel is sort of invents, or not invents, but institutes the idea of kingship in their country for the first time. So the Hebrew Bible ordering makes sense of that transition. One more word of, of setting the stage, where are we in history? Well, um, it's hard to say exactly, but we are about 1000 BCE, so 1000 years before the time of Christ. Uh, scholars call this the early Iron Age, and that's because uh, the ability to smith uh, iron was really becoming uh, prominent at the time, at this time, for the very first time. And the, at this time, at 1000 BCE, Israel was a very small player uh, in the grand historical scheme of things. In fact, the major player uh, at this time were a group of people called the Philistines. Now, I want to name this because we're going to encounter the Philistines again and again and again in this study. They keep popping up as Israel's chief uh, adversary or chief nemesis. Um, just a little kind of side note about this. Does anyone know what the Latinized word of Philistine is? You know this word, but you might not know that it's the Latinized word of Philistine. The Latinized word of Philistine is Palestine. So when we use today the modern word Palestine, that's just the Latinized version of this old name Philistine. So there's sort of this historical thread that connects these ancient stories about Israel's conflict with the Philistines and today's modern story about Israel's conflict with the Palestines. They historically are the same people. So these ancient texts somehow are still bubbling to the surface topics that are incredibly relevant to where we are in the world today. So are you with me so far? We're good? All right. Um, so let's then zoom in uh, to the story of David in 1st and 2nd Samuel. The bulk of David's story, as I said before, is contained in 41 chapters. Uh, David's story, David really doesn't come on the scene until 1st Samuel 16. And then his story is told, the rise and the reign of David is told for the next 41 chapters, which brings us through the end of 1 Samuel and through the end of 2 Samuel. What's interesting is that there's these 15 chapters that come before David comes on the scene. And I like to refer to these as the prequel. 
Now, you all know what a prequel is, right? Um, I feel like they're very in vogue in Hollywood these days. Like you have a you have a smash hit, you know, let's say the, the Lord of the Rings trilogy. And then because they were so lucrative and popular, you want to go back and tell the prehistory. How did we get to that moment when the first Lord of the Rings movie starts? Well, of course, uh, that's The Hobbit. Um, and we have this with Star Wars, I would have to say somewhat tragically, depending on your preferences, I'm still an original Star Wars guy and not an episode one to three, but I'll let you all debate about the merits of that prequel. But it's become very popular to tell these pre-stories, like who are the characters and the events that shape what we come to know as the main story? Well, the Bible is no different. It tells this prequel about the events that lead up to David being the center of attention. And that's what I wanna look at uh, for the rest of our evening today. And there are two figures who feature prominently in that prequel, and it's Hannah and her son, Samuel. And I'm gonna to refer to these both as heralds or harbingers, because in many ways, what they talk about and what they do really paves the way not only for David, but also for this idea of kingship to take hold for the first time in ancient Israel. So let's take a look at both of these two figures, and then we're going to have time to discuss and unpack various aspects of their story. So the first is Hannah. Um, we only hear of Hannah in a very small bit of the text, really in the first two chapters. And her story goes like this. Uh, Hannah is married to a man named Elkanah, and Hannah is barren. Uh, she is not able to have a child. We don't know why. We don't know what the reasons are. We don't, in fact, know if it's Hannah's barrenness or maybe it's her husband's barrenness. In the Old Testament, in the ancient world, if someone, if a couple could not have a child, it was always assumed that the woman was barren. Now, we know that that's not the case uh, through modern medicine, but that's how the Old Testament world thought about it. So Hannah was barren, and she prayed to this Lord, uh, she prayed to the Lord for the possibility to have a child. And lo and behold, time passed, and this woman, this Hannah, this woman who was barren, found herself finally uh, pregnant, and she gave birth to a child. And what she had talked about in that prayer to the Lord was that she promised to dedicate, if she ever had a child, she promised to dedicate that child to the service of the Lord in the temple. And so one of the best moments, I think, in these early chapters of 1 Samuel is that we get to listen in on Hannah's prayer of thanksgiving after the birth of her son, Samuel, and here's that text. Oops. Here's that text. Uh, this is 1 Samuel 2, 5 through 8. This is Hannah praying. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry are fat with spoil. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. The Lord raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and on them he has set the world. What a remarkable prayer that Hannah prays. And what you'll notice here is that she's actually not naming her specific circumstances, right? She doesn't say, God, thank you. I was barren for X number of years, and then you let me have a child. She's talking about broader systems. And one of the, even though she doesn't mention David in this prayer, what Hannah is anticipating is this theme 
of uh, of things that are unexpected, of, of how in God's economy, the world does not work the way the world thinks it does. In other words, it's not the powerful and the rich and the strong that ultimately prevail in God's economy, but God's whole world order kind of turns the world uh, on its inside out or upside down, uh, where the lowly and the poor and the barren, they rise up and become full and abundant and God instrument of blessing in the world. And even though, again, Hannah doesn't mention David, this theme of sort of reversal of how the unexpected one becomes the king is gonna play very prominently in our consideration of David. Now, one last thing I'll say about Hannah is that she quickly drops out of the story after the second chapter of 1 Samuel. But Hannah's influence, I think, looms large throughout the rest of the Bible. There is a psalm that echoes Hannah's prayer, but also in the New Testament, Hannah's prayer, many scholars think, forms sort of the template for the prayer that Mary prays. Now, if you remember from the story of Luke, um, Mary, after visiting Elizabeth, prays this wonderful prayer that has come to be known as the Magnificat, because the very first words of that prayer is, my soul magnifies, and Magnificat is the Latinized uh, form of that first word of the prayer. And this, she prays this wonderful prayer. And of course, for Mary, she is referring to her own situation of being unexpectedly expecting a child. She, not because she was barren, but because she was a virgin. But both women find themselves in this place of unexpectedly expecting, and, and they pray this prayer. And the prayer has many similarities to the prayer that Hannah prays, so much so that scholars think that Mary is modeling her prayer off of Hannah's prayer. And so here's just a snippet from Mary's prayer from Luke 1. She prays, he has brought down the powerful from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. According to his promise, he made to our ancestors, to Abraham and his descendants forever. You see here, even in these small bits, that Mary, much like Hannah, is imagining God entering the world and sort of turning it inside out and upside down, such that the poor and the lowly are lifted up and the powerful and the rich are brought down. And so we'll have time to think more about that uh, in our discussion later on, but I just wanted to, to point out uh, this parallel. Um, okay, let's move on to Samuel, our second figure, and really the one that takes up more attention in these early chapters. Um, Samuel is Hannah's son, and he rises to prominence in ancient Israel. He is both a prophet and a judge, meaning that he both has sort of a religious function and a political function within ancient Israel. And from all we can gather, Samuel was very successful at both, and all seems to be going along swimmingly until chapter eight, at which point the people demand of Samuel to establish a kingship. Here's what they say. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, you are old and your, I love when people, my students call me that, you are old and your sons do not follow in our ways, right? That's what, exactly what you want to hear as a father. You are old and your sons do not follow in your ways. Appoint for us then a king to govern us like other nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to govern us. So at one level, the people's request for a king makes sense. A lot of other nations have kings. 
They have the Philistine threat all around them, and they wanted a good king to sort of rally the forces and push back the Philistines. And we have that line from the end of Judges when it looked like all of society was spiraling out of control because there was no king. So it makes sense at some level that the people ask for a king, but the thing displeases Samuel. Now, why? Why would that request for a king displease Samuel? Well, I think there are a number of dimensions to this. First, it was an implicit rejection of Samuel, right? Samuel was their judge and his sons would be next in line. And they're saying, no, give us a king. So implicitly, the people are rejecting Samuel. And I have to think that this hit him personally at some level. Uh, the second thing that might have concerned Samuel is that Samuel knew that Israel already had a king, right? God was supposed to be Israel's king. Theologically, God was Israel's king. So to request another king was not just a rejection of Samuel, but in some ways, it was a rejection of God's kingship over these people. Now, the third reason I think Samuel had some reservations is that Samuel knew what kings are like. The Lord said to Samuel, listen to the voice of the people and all that they say to you. Uh, sorry, we'll get to this later. Uh, so the, the Lord says, listen to them. They have not rejected you, but they have rejected me. That's that point, that second point. I meant to show this earlier, uh, where the people are implicitly rejecting God, not just Samuel. But Samuel knew what kings were like. And in his speech that immediately follows after this, uh, Samuel lays bare for the people what kings are like. And this is a long text, but I want to read it to give you a sense of sort of the weightiness of, of what Samuel thought was at stake in the people asking for a king. Samuel said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his courtiers. He will take one tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and his courtiers. He will take your male and female female slaves and the best of your cattle and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take one-tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day, you will cry out because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you. Friends, what Samuel is highlighting is the fact that the king would be a taker. Note how many times the word take pops up in this text. Kings will take They'll take your men, they'll take your daughters, they'll take your fields, they'll take your crops, they'll take your livestock. A king will take and take and take and take for his own good and his own power, not for the good of the people. Samuel knew what it would be like for the people to have a king. And he says, don't ask for this. This is not what you want. You don't want this sort of person ruling over you. Uh, and in fact, Israel knew well historically about what it was like to be under kings. Uh, in Egypt, uh, the Israelites were slaves, the text tells us, for 400 years under Pharaoh. And Pharaoh was just the Egyptian name for the monarch, for the king. Um, so they already knew what it was like to be under a king. They already knew, uh, sorry, moving your screen, don't mean to give you motion sickness. Um, he already knew what it was like, uh, the Israelites knew what it was like to be under a king, and it was not 
good. It leads to oppression and slavery uh, and disenfranchisement. So th there's big stakes in here, and yet the people persist. They ask for a king and the God, and God relents. From there, let me fast forward our story. Uh, the first king is selected, and that king's not David. David is not the first king of ancient Israel. Uh, the first king is a man named Saul. Saul's the first king of ancient Israel. And it seems like they didn't have an election or anything like that, but it seems like he was the popular choice. And for good reason, um, Samuel is sent to anoint this first king of Israel, 1 Samuel 10, Samuel took a vial of oil and poured it on his head and kissed him, Saul, and said, the Lord has anointed you ruler over your people. This word anointed uh, in Hebrew, comes from a word in Hebrew that's pronounced mashak. And that word mashak in Hebrew uh, as a verb is used to mean anoint. But we know that Hebrew word mashak because it's from which we get the word Messiah. Messiah is based on that Hebrew word to anoint, mashak. So you might say that Samuel messiahed uh, Saul. That is, he anointed him and prepared him for this position. Saul, friends, was an obvious choice. Um, he came from the right tribe. He came from the tribe of Benjamin, which was one of the most prominent tribes in ancient Israel. Uh, he had the right attitude. Saul was humble. He didn't want to become king. Uh, always beware of kings who want to be king, right? You want the king who doesn't want to be king, right? That's, the, uh, th that's sort of the rule of thumb. And he also has the right appearance. Um, what I mean by that is that Saul was handsome and tall. Now, I, you have to understand, you might not be able to tell from where I'm seated, but I'm a man of 5'6 uh, height, and I think I'm getting shorter as I get older. So this idea that, that, that height is requirement for the king sort of hits, hits me in a certain way. But here's what the text says. Um, he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. He stood head and shoulders above everyone else. In the ancient world, friends, there was this idea that the king ought to be tall and handsome. In other words, Saul looked the part. If you kind of like imagined in your head what a king would look like, he would look like Saul. So Saul looked the part. He made sense. Now, keep, keep a, a, a pin in this observation that Saul was head and shoulders above everyone else. It's going to become a very important detail next week when we talk about David uh, and his relationship with both Saul and Goliath. So I'll say more then, so just keep it for now. Uh, but remember that Saul was head and shoulders above the rest. Well, Saul's a good king to start out with. Uh, he wins some wars, he, uh, and, and does some other things like that, but ultimately Saul is flawed. Um, and Saul makes two big mistakes, one in chapter 13 and one in chapter 15. And I wanna take a look quickly at the episode in chapter 15, where uh, Saul makes a mistake uh, a grave mistake. And because of it, he is stripped of his role as king. And what's interesting, and, and you see this from the, the title here, Samuel as a king breaker, Samuel was a king maker and a king breaker. He is the one who anoints Saul in the first place. He authenticates Saul as king. But Samuel is also the one who will be God's instrument for rejecting Saul as king. So prophets, of which Saul was one, prophets are always in tension with kings. In fact, it's no surprise that at just the time the idea of the monarchy was beginning to surface in the ancient world, the idea of prophecy 
also began to surface. Those two things, the prophet and the king, are tied in tandem, and they're often held in tension. And so keep an eye on that, something we're going to keep circling back to in this study, the ways in which kings are held in check by prophets, okay? So Samuel's going to play that role with Saul. Now, what does Saul do wrong? Well, the story goes like this. Um, Samuel tells Saul, uh, to, to go to battle against the Amalekites. The Amalekites were another neighbor of the Israelites, uh, less powerful than the Philistines, but nevertheless a persistent problem. And Samuel tells Saul to go and wipe them out. Now, this is a hard word, the fact that the prophet of the Lord is telling the king to wipe out the adversaries and to leave no survivors, right? That is a hard word that we'll probably have to say something about. Uh, in future weeks. But let's take it for granted now that that's the command. Uh, Samuel's, uh, excuse me, Saul is called to do this. But as the story turns out, Saul does not carry out this command. He does not completely wipe out the Amalekites. In fact, he spares the king and he spares the best of the cattle. And there's this great scene where, where uh, Samuel approaches Saul and Samuel can hear the sound of the cattle uh, and the sheep in the background. He knows immediately, just by what he hears, that Saul has not obeyed the command. And this is what we read. When Samuel came to Saul, Saul said to him, may you be blessed by the Lord. I have carried out the command of the Lord. Well, in point of fact, he has not. So he's lying to cover it up from the start. But Samuel said, what then is this bleeding of sheep in my ears and the lowing of cattle that I hear? So Samuel calls him out on his lie, and notice what Saul does next. Saul said, they have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and the cattle to sacrifice to the Lord your God. So he tries to blame other people. A, if the people did this. Well, if you go back and read the story, it's clear that Saul did this. And then, and then second, he tries to justify it, right? They did this to sacrifice to the Lord, your God, not the Lord, my God. Notice his language. We did this for your God, Samuel. Do you see the modes of justification? He denies it. He blames someone else, and then he tries to justify it. Isn't this the, the tend to be the three things we do when we are caught in a lie or caught in a trap, right? And so we see this on Saul, and the results are disastrous for him. Saul, as you see here in 23, uh, Samuel says to Saul, because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he, the Lord, has also rejected you from being king. There's this moment then uh, where Samuel challenges Saul and says, look, uh, obedience is better than sacrifice. You intended to spare these animals for sacrifice, thinking that that ritual was more valuable. But, but hear me, Saul, obedience is always better than the outward form of sacrifice. So from this moment, uh, Saul is stripped of the kingship. And the reason why I'm dwelling on this moment, friends, is because that this is what opens the door for David to come on the scene. David is the king that will eventually replace Saul. And in fact, this is the pivot, and we'll, we'll end on this and begin our discussion in just one moment. Uh, as we move from that scene to chapter 16, uh, the, the narrative very quickly pivots to David. The Lord said to Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul? Now, we're going to unpack that. We're going to have you discuss that in just a little bit, because it's interesting that, that Samuel's grieving over the very person he had to reject. 
Um, how long will you grieve over Saul? I have rejected him from being king over Israel. Fill your horn with oil and set out. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. Now, as we'll see next week, one of those sons of Jesse is, in fact, David. Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears of it, he will kill me. Notice it's a really dangerous mission, friends, to be called to anoint a king when there's already a king on the throne. Do you catch that, right? Saul has been rejected, but he still is in office, right? So we enter this very murky period where, where Saul has been rejected, everyone knows it, but he still in function is the king. David has been anointed as king. We'll see this in just a few verses next week, but he is not yet enthroned as king. So really a lot of the story of David gets played out in this liminal space, this in-between time. I'm thinking of U.S. politics, and it's sort of like that lame duck period, like December of an election year where one person is still in office, but another person has been elected as president. It's not a perfect analogy, but you can think of this time period as being something like that. So uh, so Saul, knowing if he knows that, that Samuel's out to anoint his successor, he is not going to be happy with it. Uh, and, and, and it's a dangerous mission that Samuel is being sent on. Then finally, the Lord says to Samuel, take a hyper with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me the one whom I name to you. Now, this is a classic Hollywood cliffhanger. Because we know that Saul's been rejected. We know that Samuel has been called to anoint the next king. We know that next king comes from the children of Jesse, but we don't yet know which son will be king. And I'm going to follow the Bible's cliffhanger and end here, because this is exactly where we want to start next week when we really begin the story of David. So friends, what we've seen tonight is this prequel, this 15 chapter backstory for this uh, leading up to David's rise and reign. And in that backstory, we see two main figures, Hannah, uh, this barren mother who is finally given a child, and then Samuel, that child who rises up to become really Israel's first prophet. Uh, and, and, and in his role as a prophet, he becomes a king maker and a king breaker. He anoints Saul, but he's also on the front lines of rejecting Saul. And this whole drama of Hannah and Samuel and Saul is all has all the ingredients that lead up to the situation where David is anointed as king. And that's exactly, friends, where we're going to take up next week. For now, though, uh, let's draw this part of the, uh, our study together to a close. Um, and by the way, let me say that um, we're about 39 minutes in, and this is going to be a little bit longer. Tonight was a little bit longer than most of these lecture portions because we did some welcoming and we did our cat thing and we did some orientation to the study. This part of the study in future weeks will be closer to 30 minutes and will give us a little bit more time for discussion. I hope you enjoyed Ryan's lecture. Um, he really kind of is pushing us to understand what it means to grieve some things and let go the way God did. And now we're getting ready to move into an office hours conversation. But before we do, I want to remind you that to check out, make sure you check out the Thursday E update because we have some exciting news to share with you of some new staff members. And so we want you to make sure you see and, and get to know all of them. And then also make sure you come back to worship on Sunday where we'll wrap up this theme during 
our worship time. We have 915 worship on campus for both traditional and contemporary. And if you're watching online, you can join us at 915 for contemporary live streamed or 11 o'clock traditional live streamed. We'd love to have you and we can't wait to see you because it's not St. Luke's without you. Already. Hey, what's up, family? I am Pastor Jeremy, and I'm here with Drs. E.B. and Ryan, and we are embarking on our sermon series about the, the characters in our life story, and we're doing so by taking a look at uh, David's life story and the characters therein through an archetypal lens. Uh, so let's jump in. Where do y'all think we should get started? Well, I love that you kind of signal the, that these supporting characters in David's story are fascinating. It's what, it's what adds so many dimensions to this whole story of David that we encounter in First and Second Samuel. Samuel. And mm-hmm. right off the bat, we get there with supporting characters. In fact, long before David comes on the scene, yeah, sure. we encounter what I call these heralds or harbingers, people who sort of point forward and pave the way to the throne for David. And that first figure we encounter is this woman, Hannah. And she's in such an interesting position, a hard position as the story begins. Yeah, I love that the the document of, of Samuel starts with Hannah because Hannah is barren. And, you know, we've already seen in the Old Testament these stories of barren women, and there's always this drive, you know, to to fix that. Like the 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 drive is well, you have to have a child. And and we've we've seen Hannah's prayer uh all over the place. Um and when she finally gets this child, she says, For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted my petition. I've seen that prayer on the walls of so many fertility clinics. Mm. You know, and uh, obviously, we have some differences now, the way we think about having children, than the way they did then. Um, this was very much a social standing and also an economic thing that you needed to have children that could defend you, that could support you as you aged. Um, and so it wasn't it wasn't quite the same, but we still have some of these social standing issues with having children and yeah. the stigma of that. Yeah. Um, so regardless of whether you're ancient or modern, you, we can understand why that desire is so deeply rooted. But what I love is that this is the way the prophet is introduced, mm-hmm. that Samuel the prophet comes out of a barren woman's womb, that there is this empty space from which the prophetic voice comes. And I feel like that's going to be a thread throughout the David story. Yeah, absolutely. We can have this sense that maybe like important leaders have to have like prominent beginnings. Mm. Um, But that's actually almost never the case in Scripture, right? And we need to sort of recalibrate around this idea that in God's economy, the the normal working is to bring up the lowly, to bring up the poor, to bring up the marginalized into the center and into positions. It's actually not typically through working through what the world names as powerful and important. Mm. I think... uh, uh, thinking about that, I think that we see throughout Scripture God being on the side of the oppressed and the marginalized, and it's almost uh, like who else would you want to be in power other than someone who, or to, or to be empowered in that way, other than someone who knows what it's like to not have, who knows what it's like to be on the margins, you know? So that makes that makes tons of sense to me. And this is a part of the story that the Bible doesn't tell, but I'm so curious about it. What would it have been like for Samuel growing up mm-hmm. and like learning faith? 
from his mother, from Hannah, who had this experience uh, of barrenness and what that meant for how he came to understand who God was and what God was like and what it meant to be a follower of God. I mean, I wish we had those extra chapters that told us that story. Well, I, I think those early chapters that we're all familiar with that we talk about in children's church and Sunday school, mm-hmm. how how Samuel first really discovers that link with God, and it's through listening. You know, and Eli says, that must be God speaking to you. When he calls again, say, speak, Lord, your servant's listening. I wonder if seeing his mother having cried out to God and Eli telling his mother, God has heard you, that we see in Samuel this same divine trait of being a listener mm-hmm. and as a huh. listener becoming a responder. Mm. You know, and so throughout the the David story, uh, Samuel is listening to God, but he's also taking that listening and he's in turn responding to people and events. Yeah. yeah. It makes me wonder, I never quite thought of it this way before, but what does Samuel's background or how does Samuel's background as being the son of someone who was on the margins, how does that help him be a listener, right? Like how does his experience, how does that matter? Why does that make him more attuned to God's voice in ways that Eli, you know, Eli, the priest he came up with, he was already in a position of power and he couldn't hear that voice. So what what's what's going on there, do you all think, in terms of the marginalized being able to be more attuned to God's voice? I, I wonder, <clears throat> I wonder how much validity there is to the idea that pain and suffering opens you up and helps you notice what's around you, right? It deepens your well of human compassion, but I think it also uh, maybe creates a searching in you. Yeah. And maybe if you are searching, you're more apt to actually hear. Yeah, that that notion of desire. Mm -hmm. You know, we hear what we want to hear sometimes. Yeah. And when you desire God's voice because you you lack, you will be more attentive to it. When, Like you said, with Eli, he already has power. Mm-hmm. He already has children and sons. Uh, not that they were very good ones, the Bible tells us. <laughs> but when, when you're not on the lookout for it, when there's not that deep want, um, then, then your, your hearing isn't that attuned. It's kind of like our kids, you know, they listen for when we come home and I swear they know the exact sound of the tires in the driveway. That means mom, because I've been waiting for her. And I feel like that desire is really present in the story. Oh, that's lovely. And I think conversely, I'm least attuned to God's voice when I'm most consumed by my own importance my own tasks, my own uh, priorities. I'm least attuned to God's voice when I'm at my busiest and I'm moving at this frenetic pace just to keep up with all of the email and all of the things on the calendar. So maybe there's a sort of uh, solitude that that Samuel experiences that attunes him to that voice or attunes him to, to be one who listens for that voice. Mm-hmm. You know, it's interesting because when, when he comes to Eli, Eli sends him back to his own room and says, mm-hmm. go back there. Don't. Mm-hmm. Maybe he knew it's not going to happen near me. It's not ah, going to happen huh. near these other things. But he said, go back to your mat. And if he calls again, say, speak, Lord, your servant is listening. And so I thought I, maybe, maybe there is that it's when we stop. It's when we remove ourselves. It's when, you know, we allow the space for those things to happen. Yeah. Well, I want to kind of 
follow this thread a little bit further because we know that Samuel then grows up and he becomes a prophet and Samuel plays this crucial role. I think of him as this king maker and king breaker, right? Mm -hmm. He is sort of God's instrument for anointing Saul as the first king, but he's also God's instrument for stripping Saul of that kingship when Saul fails. Um, and, And thinking of that role, but then also this idea that Samuel comes from the margins. Like why? And this is a theme that that happens elsewhere in scripture. We can think of John the Baptist in the New Testament. He's this sort of wild, crazy figure from the wilderness. And he too is a herald and a harbinger of something big Mm. that's coming. What is it again about sort of why do we find heralds coming from the margins? What you were just saying reminds me a little bit about what you were saying earlier about Hannah's prayer, because we see a lot of God lifts up, right? God mm-hmm. looks after the lowly. Um, and we see that exact thing happening in Samuel being becoming the kingmaker and breaker. That just that just was a thought that came up just then. But yeah, let's dig deeper into your question. I think it's in part because, you know, the 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 harbingers and heralds often question systems of power and and not just the, they're not just calling for regime change if you read Hannah's prayer mm-hmm. she's not just hoping for some tweak in the system yeah. she is dreaming of a completely transformed world a world turned upside down something other than regime change but utterly different than we can imagine and it seems to me that people in the center people in the power they have too much to lose to dream that dream, right? They are part of that system that might be overturned. So maybe we need someone on the outside to be able to see more clearly what we can't see when we're on the inside. Um, Thinking about that a little bit further. um, So Samuel grows up. As I said, he plays this role in the anointing of Saul and then the rejection of Saul. Then there's this really fascinating verse. It's chapter 16. Um, Saul has been rejected as a king and Samuel still is grieving over Saul. And I find that such a complex thing. And I kind of want to get your take on what's behind Saul's grief, right? This is the person he was very disappointed by, but what's, what do you hear in his grief? What exactly is Samuel grieving in that moment? Well, I think that's a really interesting question because at the very end of chapter 15, the writer says, and the Lord was sorry that he made Saul king over Israel. So there is divine grief that's present here. And I feel like Samuel is giving voice to that divine grief of this is not what I intended. And uh, the the next stage of making this right or better is no less painful. Isn't it funny, though, that even when we acknowledge that divine grief, the beginning of chapter 16 is God asking yeah. Saul, how, What's m- wrong how, with you? Asking how, how much longer are you going? I'll be like, wait a second, you were just grieving yourself. Exactly, exactly. Um, but that, that grief can come from so many different places, right? It can come from uh, Samuel realizing that this may have been the first king, but there will be many more. Yeah. And it's going to look a lot similar each time. It could be similar to what we talked about in Bible study, where maybe uh, Samuel saw, uh, saw as a victim, where he was lifted up by his community, may have not even wanted to be king, but he was from the right tribe. He had the right look. Mm-hmm. He, you know what I mean? The, the kind of things yeah, we covered. Yeah, yeah. Um, but he was uh, kind of pushed into this mold to, uh, to be a king and uh, kings are takers. 
that's that's what we're given from uh, Samuel and his uh, synopsis of a king. That's right. Yeah. I mean, part of me wonders, thinking about God's grief, and I'm glad you brought that up, E.B., is that, you know, I think my instinct is to think, well, God is sorry. He's sort of upset. He's disappointed. He's a a disappointed parent Mm. over Saul for having gone wrong. But I think there's another angle to it as well, and it's a disappointment that this was a failure, not just in Saul, but that 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 God is grieving with the people mm-hmm. over the loss of their first king. The people asked for this. There was a lot riding on this first king, and it was a failure. I wonder if God's grief is for the people, not just about Saul, but but God feels the pain of this loss, of this rejection. Yeah, I mean, not to, not to go far t- too deep into a theological tangent, but that question could really challenge a lot of our perspective about God. Like yeah. how, like uh, if God could possibly foresee this being a failure, yeah. why did yeah. God feel that so deeply? Yeah. Why did God have to mourn something that God possibly could have foreseen? Yeah. yeah. Especially since the very first image we get um, of Hannah praying at the beginning, Eli comes to her and says, how long will you make yourself a spectacle? Mm. She's she's crying. Mm. He thinks she's drunk, of course. And he's like, how long are you going to do this? Yeah. Yeah. And so it's interesting. We have the same sort of response Eli has to Hannah initially, mm-hmm. that, and then God has with Samuel. Yeah. And both of them, I feel, have this compassion to offer. It mm. might sound like they don't, mm-hmm. but there is, there is some... It's, we're going to move into a new stage and it's going to get better, even though it's really painful right now. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I think that might be the gist of of God with Samuel is I understand it hurts, mm-hmm. but it's going to get better. Of course, mm-hmm. I don't know if it does, but that's at least, you know, the idea that's in play there. You know, one other dimension uh, of that verse where it says that God grieves and was sorry that he made Saul king, that word for sorry in Hebrew, nacham, it, it can mean to regret or uh, to change God's mind. And then we have sometimes this theological idea that God never changes or God never changes God's mind or something like that. But this is actually mm-hmm. a, a, a case in point that in fact it happens. Like mm-hmm. God mm-hmm. has not just grief, but maybe even regret that he made Saul as king. And so it's a, it, to enter into God's grief over this moment, I think is an important part of the story that God has skin in the game. That God is hurt by this. God isn't somehow above it and beyond it. But God's wounded by this failure. Not an emotionless bystander or just That's observer, right. but somebody who, like you said, has skin in the game and legitimately cares about those who are being affected. Yeah, for sure. And that's there's an idea. There's this great Jewish rabbi Abraham Heschel from the early part of the 20th century. He was a dear friend of Martin Luther King Jr. He marched on all of the marches that uh, Martin Luther King helped organize. Heschel's there by his side, often with, by the way, the Hebrew Bible, the Torah scroll opened mm-hmm. to kind of represent that the Bible stands mm. with this movement for justice. Um, but Heschel has this idea where he, you know, we typically think about divine when we talk about divine. Um, uh, wrath or, or rage or something like that. And God gets angry. We have this idea of an angry God, especially in the Old Testament. But what Heschel invites us to imagine is not God being angry at humanity for sin, but God being brokenhearted mm-hmm. because of humanity's sin. So it's a different sense of God's sort of like upright anger and just like God suffers. When we sin, God suffers over the brokenness of the world. God is vulnerable in that sense. And maybe we're getting a glimpse of that here in this text. 
Um, you know, the other uh, another part of this dynamic uh, is that mentor, or excuse me, that these harbingers and heralds often uh, can play the role of a, a mentor in, in a certain way, and that they can shape who the protagonist will be. Now, that's not a clearly the case with Samuel. There's a little bit of overlap there. We don't get a lot of that story, but it opens up this broader question about um, the role of mentors in our lives. And I wonder if you all might talk about that just to kind of get personal a little bit. Like, who have mentors been for you, and how have they helped pave the way towards your calling into your path? Um, one of my mentors in college was this guy named uh, Perry Keel. Tall guy, had a habit of letting his hair grow into this huge afro. And uh, he would preach in the dorms. And sometimes he would preach so hard he would sweat from his knees. But he's a pretty passionate guy. Uh, and I remember him taking me aside one day and kind of saying, Jeremy, I think that there's something for ministry in you. It's something that I considered once in my life, but it kind of uh, ruled out. Um, but when I think about how Samuel functioned in the life of David, he saw him. Hmm. He looked at uh, all of his brothers and was like, no, that's not him. That's ah. not him. That's not him. But he was able to look beyond his appearance and his youth and say, you're the one. Uh, and I can't imagine what that might have done for David for the rest of his life. Being able to look back on that moment wow. and know that the prophet of God said, no, you're the one. Right. And that might have blown his head up a little too much at certain points. But yeah. we're not here to talk about that today. We'll get to that another yeah, time. That's, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I love that. Um, that he saw something in David mm -hmm. that David probably couldn't see in himself. I mean, David is this young shepherd boy. And by the way, we don't know how old David was in chapter 16 when he's anointed. But mm -hmm. the text leads us to think that he's pretty young. Yeah. I mean, a, a young teenager, maybe mm -hmm. even a tween. Yeah. So 12. So think about like what sort of. How, how would it have fallen for David to hear that he would be the king? He surely needed a human voice to say, no, I see this in you. I see you as this person. Evie, what is it like for you? Did, can you think of a mentor and how they shaped you? Yeah, absolutely. My The mentor that really stands out to me uh, was a woman that I went to church with in North Carolina and she uh, was there when I was ordained as a deacon. She was mm. there when I was ordained as a minister. But before all of those things happened, she was just there doing life with me. Uh, as I was a young mother in seminary trying to figure out how to raise children, uh, she had raised children. She had been a kindergarten teacher, and she was the place I could get. In fact, I, I describe her not just as a person, but she was a place that I could go. And when I was wrestling with decisions or I was uncertain about anything, she was where I went hmm. for advice. Um, wow. It was always um, not judgmental, but she could be very firm with me and really show me what I needed. I think that you mentioned that, that there's, there's this, this part of mentoring that's, that's showing someone. It's, it's letting them know that they've been seen and that you've seen something in them, and that you also have things to show them. Mm -hmm. um, and so I learned so much from her, and I continue to learn a lot from her, and I'm just unbelievably grateful um, to have had her leadership, like not just in the church that I went to, but her leadership in my life. Mm -hmm. Wow, that's amazing. And that's something that, you know, for our listeners to, I would invite them to think about, like, who have, who have been the mentors in your life? Who have been the heralds and harbingers, people who could see something in you or about you or your future yeah. before you could see it, right? That's sort of the beautiful way that community functions, that we need others to help us. And then in turn, we can 
live into that role for other people as well? How do we function as those mentors, heralds, and harbingers for other people in our midst, whether young or old, kids or peers? Um, I think that's the beauty of the community of Christ working together and being together and living together. Hopefully we do that prayerfully. Amen. You know what I mean? Um, yeah. And thinking about what you're saying, um, sometimes, or at least the pastors have talked about how sometimes the harbinger doesn't walk to the thing with you or they don't walk through life with you. And I believe you said some of that too. But sometimes they're just a person that gestures at the thing, yes. right? Kind of like, and yeah. you brought up the example of Nick Fury in the <laughs> Marvel movies because it just kind of shows up and says, yo, this is the thing, yeah. and then mm-hmm. disappears like Batman, yeah. right? Yep. Yeah. Well, that's true of David and, and Samuel. Samuel dies long before David is actually enthroned as king. And so there is, he gestures toward it. He, he names the future, but he's not there with him. David will need other voices in his life beyond Samuel. And that's sort of what will take us into future weeks, as, especially as we think about David's caretakers and providers who journeys with him beyond where Samuel can take him. 